I think also like with yours, you know, where they denied the testing with IBIS, I don't understand how they could assert in any way that, well, if the gun is still out there and still being used or has been used in other crimes, that that does not advance a credible claim of actual innocence on Jamie's behalf, because obviously he's locked the fuck up. Snow Files, episode 39, Ballistics, part two. It's shot rocket science. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that an amazing new podcast by journalist Chris Moss is premiering Friday, October 15th, just in time for Halloween. What Happened at Grayley Pond is a nine-part exploratory serial podcast about a murder, a haunting, and what happens after we die. It is truly And we got a chance to take a preview of the first couple of episodes, and it is super cool. So we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. We're going to play a quick trailer, and then we're going to get on with the ballistics episode. Nobody wants to go out to Braley Pond. They're afraid that there's some demons out there. Braley Pond is a four and a half acre recreational area located in the George Washington and Jefferson National Forest, just 30 minutes west of Stanton, Virginia. Despite its popularity during the day, Braley Pond has become infamous for what happens there at night. He spins him around and he slits his throat, throws him in the lake. On May 22, 2003, 19 year old Christopher S. Kennedy, or Scott as he was called, was murdered by local gang members at Braley Pond. He was lured there under false pretenses, stabbed 13 times in the chest and back, his body dumped into the water. Six months later, Shay Willis and her friend Chris Pugh, two local paranormal investigators, visited Braley Pond after hearing rumors of strange, unexplainable events happening there. What they found was unlike anything they had ever experienced before. And before I could get up and move, whatever it was that was behind me landed on my back. I could feel what felt like a physical presence, which is unlike anything I I have ever experienced before or since. Whatever was in that water, whatever came up over the dam, whatever it was that was following us across the bridge, I had stopped and it caught me. So this thing is more of a, it, it feeds on soul energy. That's what it's after. It needs soul energy. What happened at Braley Pond? Available this October, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to elaborate just a little bit on the bullets, you know. When they denied us to run the bullets through IBIS, they argued that because they didn't use ballistics against me at trial, that it wouldn't advance my claims of actual innocence. And that's one of the factors you have to satisfy to get the testing done. 
but I don't think that they really understood really what we were trying to do and the reason we were trying to run those bullets. If that gun had been used in other crimes at a time when it could not have been me, if that gun was recovered on somebody, was recovered in somebody's possession that has absolutely no connection to me, those are things that would would help advance my claims of, of actual innocence. And like I've said, there's cases in history where they used ballistics to match other crimes to the same gun before they ever got the gun. So if the state's attorney in this case was actually seeking the truth and justice, they could absolutely run those bullets through IPAS right now. What is going on right now is not a truth-seeking, justice-minded reaction to the arguments that we're making and the motions that we're filing. This is nothing more than a, a state attorney's office that's trying to defend a conviction. That's all it is. As science advances and unanswered questions can be answered, they don't want to answer those questions. What they want to do is they just want to simply defend a conviction and the truth and justice is no longer in the equation. So we're really hoping that perhaps the McLean County State's Attorney's Office will want to put some of these questions to bed. And let's just do what we can do. And if they answer the questions that haven't been answered, great. If they don't answer any questions at all, then that is what it is. But if science advances, we should advance with it. In June 1997, a man was shot and killed in a telephone booth in Oakland, California. Police had no suspect and no clues, except the bullets they took from the decedent. More than a year later, a police examiner test-fired a weapon taken from two men arrested in Oakland for unlawful possession of a firearm. The examiner entered the results into a computerized database containing ballistics information from thousands of unsolved crimes. Within seconds, the search had matched the weapon to the telephone booth shooting. The two suspects confessed. One of the biggest question marks over the years has been if a bullet alone can be submitted to the ballistics database and compared to a weapon. From the interview with Patrick Persley and the story we just shared, we know as early as 1997 that a bullet, specifically a bullet retrieved from a decedent, as in Jamie's case, can indeed be submitted to the ballistics database for a match. The National Integrated Ballistics Information Network, or NIBIN, automates ballistics evaluations by taking images of weapons evidence recovered from crimes, guns, casings, and bullets, and uploading them into a database, allowing a comparison of ballistics evidence used in crimes across the nation. The image may produce nothing or multiple leads. But to be clear, a microscopic physical examination by a ballistics expert is required to confirm a match. According to ATF statistics, the NIBIN currently contains 4.5 million pieces of ballistic evidence. 307,000 leads were generated and over 132,000 hits have been confirmed in its 24-year history. In 2020 alone, 472,948 pieces of evidence were acquired, and 104,206 leads were generated. In early April of 1991, the bullets recovered from Bill Little's body were examined by the Illinois State Police, 
They were determined to be 22 long rifle caliber copper washed bullets with rifling characteristics of eight lands and grooves with right hand twist. So what do these characteristics mean? When a gun is fired, the grooves present in the bore of the firearm cause the bullet to spin as it travels through the length of the barrel. The high pressure created while propelling the bullet causes the bullet to be pressed and scraped against the rifling. As a result, the fired bullet comprises the characteristics of the land and grooves. The rifling present in the barrel is either twisted to left or right, which in turn causes the bullet to rotate as it passes through the bore, ensuring stability during the flight of the bullet. For bullets, the software looks at grooves worn in the projectile by a weapon's lands, raised surfaces on the inside of the gun barrel that scar the bullet as it travels upward. These land engraved areas are accompanied by a left or right twist that imparts spin and accuracy. The examiner also provided a partial list of gun types that match the characteristics of the murder weapon, including ROM, RGIND, Liberty Arms, Kuvi Arms, Arminus, Burgo, Kimmel, American Firearms, Jacado, PIC, and Dixon. The report went on to recommend that McLean County submit any and all weapons subsequently obtained for examination. There were multiple submissions for comparison that same year. In September, Charlie Crow submitted a Harrington and Richardson revolver and Jeff Durbin's fingerprint because Durbin was a suspect in the Mobile Mart robbery. The latent prints were not suitable for comparison, but a note on the bottom of the report states the revolver was forwarded to the Firearms and Toolmark section for further analysis and will be subject to a separate report. The same Harrison and Richardson revolver was submitted again in October to compare to the Clark Oil murder. On this report, police state Jeffrey Durbin and Jeff Miller were listed as suspects in the Mobile Mart robbery. The ISP determined it was not a match due to significant differences in class characteristics. Recall, the Jeffs were convicted of using a cab to do multiple robberies during that time. In November, a 22 caliber Ruger, listed only as found, but doesn't say where, was compared to the Clark Oil Bullets. Again, no match. But probably the strangest comparison submitted occurred in late April of 1992. A police report obtained through FOIA states that Charlie Crow spoke with Finn Nielsen of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Lab to inquire about a homicide in Blind River. Nielsen advised Crow that their bullets were 22 LR8, right twist. Nielsen also said his has a C case and is probably a sawed-off rifle. The notes also show that Nielsen wanted to know why Crow thought the cases were related. Ronald West was a former police officer and a suspect in a 1991 double homicide and robbery at a Blind River, Ontario rest stop. Gord McAllister, 62, and his wife Jackie, 59, were on their way to visit relatives and pulled their RV into the rest stop for the night. At about 1 a.m., someone knocked on the door and identified himself as a police officer. When Jackie opened the door, the assailant said it was a robbery. The man made his way into the RV and fired his rifle, instantly killing Jackie. Gord was shot in the back as he escaped, but managed to get to the main road to call for help. Gord described the suspect as being about six feet tall and having long, stringy blonde hair. West was never charged with those murders, 
And although West was a suspect, the Blind River Killer has never been solved and is a popular case among amateur sleuths. West was convicted in 1995 for a few violent robberies and sentenced to eight years in Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario. Soon after his conviction, West's house was sold, and during renovations, the new owners found an envelope hidden in a wall. Inside were firearm permits in West's name from 1969 and 1970. The new owners shared the documents with a police detective, who in turn shared them with a colleague who recognized a permit matched the same gun used in the 1970 killings. Although the fragmented bullets could not be matched, the saliva on the envelopes were tested for DNA. It turns out that West was a positive match for the violent killings and rapes of two young mothers in separate crimes that occurred in 1970. In 1999, West was charged with first-degree murder in those crimes. He pleaded guilty and received two life sentences. If you're wondering what these crimes have to do with the gas station robbery homicide in Bloomington, Illinois, you're not alone. By all accounts, West was in Canada the entire time he was committing crimes. What was the link? We attempted to file a Freedom of Information Act on this case years ago, and the request was that we needed to be Canadian citizens in order to file. So we got our friend, Christine Bivens, who is a Canadian citizen, to file a FOIA with the Canadian police. The Mounties were non-responsive. Go figure. I guess we're not so different after all. That wasn't the only strange case the Clark Oil murder bullets were compared to. The bullets were also compared to murders that occurred in Georgia and Minnesota as well. When we filed FOIAs for those cases, each state responded that they had no information. It's just weird. We have no idea what the link is to these national and international cases and the Clark homicide in small-town Bloomington, Illinois, but it seems to center around ballistics. That said, another unusual characteristic noted in police reports is that the tips of the bullets were shaved off. This characteristic was also discovered in FOIA. Both bullets appear to have unusual nose designs. Almost appears as if someone would have cut the round portion off, making them flat. Did the bullets in the Canada, Georgia, and Minnesota cases have the tips filed down? Also discovered in FOIA was a videotape from the mid-1990s of raw news reports, including one featuring a much younger Senator, Chuck Schumer who is proposing legislation to outlaw the up-and-coming rhino bullets, which he argued were a threat to police because they were made to pierce hard surfaces, such as Kevlar. The National Rifle Association is skeptical that rhino ammo will do all that its manufacturer claims. In a statement issued late this afternoon, the NRA says this has all the trappings of a hoax. Congressman Charles Schumer of New York says he will introduce legislation to stop these new bullets. The people who are making these bullets, it's blood money, plain and simple. There is no legitimate purpose for it. The only purpose is to allow criminals to put fear and even worse into the bodies and hearts of our policemen and women. Now that the company has these new bullets, it plans to make even more money marketing a vest that will stop them. These new bullets are legal under federal law. They will not be on the market next Monday. It will take at least two months before the ATF considers approval. Bob Dotson, NBC News, Huntsville, Alabama. It was yet another debate between legislators and the NRA. But what did that have to do with the Clark Oil murder? 
Why was that videotape included in the Clark Oil murder file? There were also other crime-related news stories on the tape. Maybe the purpose was the serial killer featured in one of those reports. Who knows? You can visit the episode page on snowfiles.net to view the entire news clip video. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Lastly, not one person present at the Clark Oil Station on the night of the crime was tested for gun residue. Not Martinez, Gutierrez, Hartley, or Rhodes. Not even the victim. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. In 2011, Jamie's attorney from the Exoneration Project, Tara Thompson, filed a motion requesting ballistics testing. The Illinois Post-Conviction Act outlines the items which must be met, and Tara carefully explained how Jamie's motion met the following requirements. The evidence to be tested was secured in relation to the trial, which resulted in conviction. The evidence was not subject to the testing which is now requested at the time of the trial, or can be subjected to new testing not scientifically available at the time of trial that provides a reasonable likelihood of more prohibitive results. Identity was the issue in the trial which resulted in conviction. The chain of custody is sufficient to establish that the evidence to be tested has not been substituted, tampered with, replaced, or altered in any material aspect. The testing has the potential to produce new, non-cumulative evidence materially relevant to the defendant's assertion of innocence. The requested testing employs a scientific method generally accepted within the relevant scientific community. Reasonable notice of the motion is served upon the state. The petition goes on in detail to explain how Jamie's request meets the requirements. The original post-conviction motion was summarily denied in April 2011. In 2013, the ballistic testing request was included in a more comprehensive motion for DNA testing of fingerprints, blood, clothing, chain of custody of items, and discovery of documents related to the crime scene. At that time, a court order for subpoenas to the Illinois State Police and Bloomington Police Department was granted to Jamie's lawyers for documents related to the crime scene. However, the order was limited, and Jamie's then-attorney, Tara Thompson, was ordered to review the documents at the state's attorney's office, and she was prohibited from sharing any information discovered during the process. As we now know from the recent hearing, nearly 8,000 documents were withheld from Jamie and his attorneys. Perhaps a review of these recent documents will reveal the thinking behind Charlie Crow's efforts to compare ballistics in all of these geographical areas. At any rate, it is reasonable to conclude that the bullets recovered from Bill Little's body should be tested with new technology. As Jamie always says, it's the only evidence we know for certain, without a doubt, that came from the killer of Bill Little. A special thanks to Dawn for doing the research for this episode. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. 
It's been 10 years since the first ballistic motion was filed in Jamie's case, and still to this day, Jamie is seeking relief. Jamie's motion meets every requirement for the Illinois Post-Conviction Act, yet the state continues to deny ballistic testing. We know the bullets can be run through the national database, and we know cases have been solved with bullets alone being submitted. The bullets in Jamie's case were not only compared to crimes that occurred locally and out of state, but they were even seeking information about crimes committed in Canada. Why not test the bullets? If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Jamie is seeking testing of blood, bullets, clothes, and fingerprints. None of these items have been tested with today's technology. This episode concludes our exploration of forensics evidence. So where do we go from here? We still have a few issues we'd like to address on Jamie's case before we move on to season three, which will be announced soon. But tune in next week for the Q&A on ballistics. That's next time on Snowfall.